Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Christina Brito, Associate Professor of History at Nova FCSH Lisbon and a researcher at the Center for Humanities at the same school to talk about her new book, Humans and Aquatic Animals in Early Modern America and Africa, out this year, 2024, with the Amsterdam University Press. Hello, Christina, and welcome to the program. Hello, Yana. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It is wonderful. We've had a little bit of a road getting here. Both of us were sick, and uh, but we're here now and healthy and happy. So, hurrah! All right, great to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Great to be sitting up and speaking as well. I'm sure, but you know, it's it's not it's a thing we shouldn't take for granted. Okay, not these days yet. Yeah, so tell me, how did you come to write this book? Okay, so uh, let me start by saying that uh, my background is in biology, marine biology. Mm -hmm. Uh, I worked for a couple of years early on in my career studying marine animals on the wild, and then I turned uh, out to be an historian. So I did my PhD uh, in early modern history of the uh, European expansions in the world, so that period. But I was really focusing on the animals. So those animals that, that I used to study when I was a marine biologist, uh, I was trying to find them and, and look for them and understand them, understanding them in the past. Uh, and kind of navigating the historical sources of that period. So I was working mostly with marine mammals, uh, whales, dolphins, seals, sea lions, and then I came to the manatees or the sea cows. Uh, and that's how I came to the topic itself of the book. Um, in this in this path of you know searching for for animals on on kind of the waves of history and how they would uh, help me to understand how peoples interacted uh, different societies interacted uh, with marine environment yeah okay that makes sense i can see how you were that you were trained as an as a marine biologist first yeah that yeah. all right um because you are do you you use well first of all the topic, the scope doesn't fit into our, like how we uh, kind of, you know, slice up our discipline, like the disciplinary boundaries. um, This is, you work on early modern America and Africa, and that just doesn't happen. Those are Africanists and and Americanists. So that explains a little bit here. Um, What was your thought process in in connecting these two areas? Yeah, I was trying to, well, the, the focus and the central piece are the animals themselves and try to write a history or a narrative around the animals and how people interacted with them. And then, uh, well, I'm sitting in Lisbon, I'm a, an European uh, woman, scholar, but I, I'm really, and I'm looking for uh, and studying European sources, but I am I was really interested, interested in understanding how other societies of that period 
um, understood and used and and uh, also uh, communicate their relationships with marine animals. So using those sources, I was trying to understand kind of local practices, indigenous practices, traditional practices uh, in the South Atlantic. That's my my kind of geography. It's not hard because it's, uh, sorry, it is hard because we are you know looking for material that was written by Europeans for uh, Europeans consumption at that period of time. So trying to show uh, people in Europe how these other parts that were being taken and occupied and colonized were. And so it's really uh, difficult to grasp local realities, but that's, uh, as an historian or an environmental historian, that's my uh, challenge. And, mm-hmm. and so I kind of connect, you know, Europe with West Africa and, and Central and South America. You know, and it made sense. It makes sense to think about following the animals, right? When we're talking about sea mammals, they don't care about how African languages are different and you'd have to learn a different, like, historiography. Um, And if you treat the Atlantic and the South Atlantic as your territory, then the land that hits on it, it makes perfect sense. It's just... It seems like it, it probably made the book harder to write. I'm guessing. Yeah, it does. It's more. It's more than a kind of a comparative study. I, I tried to encompass it all. It's kind of a global approach to the South Atlantic, uh, in that sense, where I, I tried to find the similarities or you know convergences or divergences in the use of the animals and the perceptions about the animals. Um, and they, in this case, if we were talking about whales, for instance, that migrate and move around, we could follow them. In this case, manatees or, or sea cows, they are kind of, um, they are local. They, they do move around, of course, but they are very coastal. They live near the shore or in shore waters. And that kind of conditions the way people interact with them because they're there and they're part of their daily lives. Well, they were. <laughs> Today mm-hmm. they are endangered species. Uh, but, but at that point, they, they were for sure much more abundant that they are, than they are today and distributed along large uh, regions. And so people interacted with them kind of in a daily basis if they were using those same habitats and ecosystems where the animals lived in. So humans and uh, non-humans from the aquatic environments kind of sharing their space, their environment and being uh, together, you know, uh, uh, co-constructing history and also ecology. So this idea of eco-cultural systems that are built together. And that's that's something that we can focus on by uh, working with the animals uh, as subjects um, of our study. And how do you get at these animals? What kind of sources do you use? The typical sources that an historian would use to study, uh, you know, early modern ex- expansions and, and colonization. So uh, kind of logbooks, travel diaries, um, general histories written of, of, for uh, specific parts of the South Atlantic, um, natural history treaties, you know, letters, correspondence, also... Um, documents regarding um, imports and exports, so the consume of the animals, the value, the products that are extracted, and they are changed um, amongst the the imperial scenario of of the Portuguese and the Spanish empires of the time. Uh, Those are are the documents that I'm looking for. And uh, trying to understand the moment prior context, and I'm I'm not an archaeologist, so I'm not 
even though I do like a lot uh, <laughs> material evidence and objects and animal bones and uh, specimens in natural history museums, but I'm not a specialist on that. So I try to look for uh, early sources for the moment of contact or, or confrontation between Europeans and uh, American native societies or African societies. Try to see that moment where it was still possible to understand what was there. Uh, before the influence and, and the impact and uh, this great uh, dis- disruption uh, produced by the European presence in, in non-European spaces. So these are my sources. So I do written sources, iconographic, you know, a, a lot of um, drawings, illustrations, and also a little bit of cartography. And all this together does allow us to put together a, a, a story that is very... Uh, fragmented and and I need to fill in some holes and and to make connections or bridge a couple of aspects but all together just put together a nice story of how people interacted with with the animals uh, what they meant what the animals meant for people and in this case in the book they were at the same time that's what I came to realize uh, they could be at the same time a, a resource for food for medicine for use they were an economic resource because they became very valuable uh, for for Europeans both in col- in colonial spaces as in Europe but they were also uh, pets for local people or local uh, colonial societies they had a symbolic meaning so they were this kind of all-encompassing entity. They were more than their uh, ecological mm-hmm. reality. Yeah, I mean, this is a great time then to ask about Mato the Manatee. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about Mato. Yeah. Mato. Who was he? Yeah. Mato the Manatee. So this is a story um, written early on, described as, as a manatee that was kept in an enclosed area, maybe a coastal lagoon that was close to the ocean or a kind of man-made pool, so an aquatic environment that was said to be kept by by the Taino people or a group of the Taino from the Caribbean uh, or original uh, native people from the Caribbean at the time that uh, the Spaniards got to a couple of islands in the Caribbean basin. Uh, And the manatee Matu was said Matu or Matun was said to be kept by the cacique and was part of the family. And that kids would, or, or people there would sing to them or talk to them and, and Matu would come to be fed by hand and would come close to shore. So this was the first description. And then several writers or, or uh, scholars of the time, historians, humanists, kept repeating the story. And some said, so this is, this is made up, this idea that, People would see stuff that was not real. This is made up. It's not possible because, yeah. So, uh, and others consider it was real. Anyhow, the the, the story itself got reproduced several times, uh, and it's present uh, in the historical record. And many representations of this manatee within a lagoon are also found. And I found it very curious because even it, it, it really doesn't matter if it happened or not. Uh, the fact is that this manatee itself, so this individual, this animal, represented for a certain group of people. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that the Taino did not hunt manatees or consume them or use them as food. They most probably did. But at the same time, this animal itself was part of 
this uh, human family, so an ecological connection between people and their environment. Uh, so it was uh, fed um, and it was really important uh, for people and at the same time uh, represented this clash uh, of the early modern societies or different societies in the early modern period which is Europeans, upon seeing the animal, as the, so the story uh, goes, would uh, kind of poke him or, or stroke him, and the animal would be afraid of them. So it also represented the, different, the, the connection that different societies, uh, indigenous societies, would have with animals, this idea of kind of a pristine relation to, to the environment um, and how uh, people coming... Uh, from abroad and taking um, taking over the space, controlling the, the well, the local people, the territories, but also the resources would change everything. Because then the manatee, when he was um, seen by a Spaniard man uh, that wanted to see if that's true, uh, he stopped coming to the Taino, and then eventually the lagoon was open to the sea, and the manatee was back to its kind of natural or original environment, which would be the sea or the shore waters of that region of, or, or the island. So the story, it's, it's really detailed. And you, we can find it a bit uh, everywhere up to current day when people talk about about this. And it's really a good example. So it was the kind of the motive for me to, to start writing the book. And it, uh, you know, just goes across all, kind of all the chapters in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, just to give it kind of uh, continuity. Yeah, like there's these ways Mato, this the Mato the Manatee refler, uh, reflects kind of your whole story. Yeah. Right. It's, um, and this thing, you know, um, I, I found myself trying to categorize this relationship. Is he a pet? Is he their friend? Is he actually a captive the whole time? Right. Like, yeah. It, the, the thing is, people do keep manatees. Um, in captivity, they they can survive very well. They are very coastal. They live in shallow waters, um, and there are. I, I when I went to see if this could be a possibility, it is in fact because they are they are well today in places where they are endangered. If if a manatee is find you know stranded or hurt, people will take them in, take care of them, and then uh, kind of rehabilitate them, and then just. Uh, send them out again to their environment, and they live well within confined areas. So this is a possibility. Uh, this is not something that's strange. It could happen, in fact. So uh, it, it could be something that uh, a manatee could endure and survive for many years. So uh, it could be something there. Uh, and then we, we, we really cannot tell about uh, mm -hmm. people's emotions or, or, or feelings. Uh, well, we cannot tell them about them today. <laughs> How can we kind of address them uh, in the past? We can try, but we are not really sure if this kind of intimate relationship, uh, um, kind of a, a connection with uh, an animal like this could happen. I would say so. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. it's possible. Sure. But yeah, like, I mean, as you noted, it... The, the the what happened we can't really get at and it doesn't matter anyway yeah. it, the the point is that there's this story that still resonates yeah um much like you know in your second chapter you talk about mysterious water creatures like you know like uh, the mermaid mm -hmm. 
and does does the mermaid exist matters less than what the mermaid means, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, the mermaid, uh, the, the, well, studying mermaids, it's been kind of uh, transversal to my research because when I started doing this, I was uh, I was thinking like you know, mermaids are part of a narrative that still, well, in Europe at least. Uh, when people are not familiar with these animals that are from subtropical or trop- tropical uh, by regions of the world, and then when they would come to know the animals, either manatees, dugongs, or I don't know other species of seals or felines, when people would, when Europeans would get to know the animals, kind of the myth of the mermaid would vanish. That was my reasoning about this many, many years ago. And of course, this is not true. So mermaids, as a a myth, they are pervasive along history. They cross cultures, they cross geographies. Again, up to the present day, there are people that still believe in them. And that really doesn't matter. So the, the fact this entity, this more than human or hybrid entity is really important for many cultures. And for the, the part of the world that I study and the time of our uh, human history that I study, the mermaid is important, is relevant, it represents... The mermaid in its... kind. It's not just the mermaid as we conceive them today, so it's this water deity that can be uh, represented in multiple formats and ways and have multiple meanings, but it does represent a connection and kind of a dependency of humans with the aquatic environment. And in many parts uh, of um, their, also the distribution of this myth, they are connected with aquatic animals and mostly for almost all the cases, probably manatees. Uh, that's how we came to the to the um, Mami Wata uh, construction, mm-hmm. which is a, an African a deity that was transported with enslaved people from West Africa, brought uh, to the Americas, and the Mamiwata is still today uh, venerated. Uh, venerated, how do you say? It? They, mm-hmm. It's part of the cults in in in, in the Caribbean uh, as well as in Africa. It can also connect it to the Brazilian Yemanja or Yara, many other water deities that are important today for people. Mm-hmm. Um, so the she the the mermaid reflects kind of a relationship, a kind of a, a happy relationship, or uh, it has a dual meaning. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, is is there something because I I feel like there's some there's a gendered component here somehow that it's about mermaids and very little we see we very little about mermen in I, no, and why uh, is that if, yeah if we go through the sources we will find as much mermaids as mermen so merwomen and mermen they are present uh, and this construction of this feminine mermaid as we uh, conceive it today it's much centered in our kind of European matrix mm-hmm. of thinking and uh, ways of uh, uh, understanding the world. So the, the mermaid is, is hybrid in all its meanings from the water and, and, and the air. It's human and it's a fish. It's also a woman or, or a man or something in between. And that's also very interesting to address that, that this, even though we call it mermaid, it could be a non-gendered figure and it could have multiple meanings uh, regarding to that aspect in different societies. And it also connects very well to the manatee because the animal is itself kind of also hybrid. 
because it has this also dual or, or multiple meanings that are attached to itself. Being aquatic is also very coastal and connected to land. It feeds on, on algae, but also on, on plants uh, from uh, the shores. It, is, it lives in water but needs to come to the surface to breathe as a mammal that it is. Uh, it nurses its calves, so there's all these um, connections to kind of an hybridity. And, and the mermaid also in, uh, encloses all these multiple meanings. Uh, she, he, or they can be uh, good or bad. They can represent all the possibilities of the ocean, but also all the dangers. So it's, it's, and I think that's why it's so transversal to so many cultures, mm-hmm. because it encompasses a lot of what is uh, human nature. Uh, it's kind of a reflection or a mirror of humans uh, in all its complexities across time. Mm. So how does, um, how do, what's the difference between a mermaid or a merperson and then these sea monsters? Well, there are many uh, representations of different sea monsters. Um, they they all kind of represent the same. These uh, these paradoxes of the ocean, of the deep sea, of the horizon. What's far away? What can be found or not? Um, and but but they uh, include the the sea monsters. Usually, are part uh, of what people does not understand in the ocean. So they include, they can include their own representations of views of the world. And then people just put together this bunch of parts of marine animals uh, that they have never seen or they are not familiar with to construct this idea of, of a, a monster. And uh, in, in, in history, sea monsters have a very clear purpose uh, either do not come to this part of the world or, or on uh, this represent dangers or, or this re- on the other end, it could represent abundance and diversity somehow. And um, sometimes they mean that people are, do, they do not understand exactly, exactly what they are seeing in that part of the world or the ocean. And on the other hand, if we go to um, the natural history process of construction in Europe, sometimes people knew that they were making up animals. So <laughs> monsters in some way could be fake news of the time, if you will. They are they have a, a, a background of truth, either mythological, religious, or symbolic, and ecological, so from the biology point of view, but then they are kind of a, a confusion. Everything is messed up. And they sometimes they were produced just to catch attention of people on a topic. Uh, uh, and um, uh, the idea was to attract their attention to a subject by uh, showing people something that was strange, that was new, that was exotic, even if it was not real. So there are a couple things that I'm thinking, this brings up to mind, you know, the idea that just like over there is scary stuff, yeah. you know, um, when we think about early travel narratives, there are dragons, the Amazons live on the other side of that mountain. Like there are giant snakes in the sea, but, but then there's also, there are giant snakes in the, in the sea. There are actually, you know, giant alligators or something in the new world. Right. So there's, it's a fear, but it's based on something on something known. Right. Yeah, something that's true, something that's out there in some cases, and, but in the in others, uh, 
not so much. Uh, and, and what you see sometimes is that animals are represented uh, in their, considering their real features, their real behavior and distribution alongside with uh, mythical creatures, alongside with sea monsters. And they, on themselves, they have a certain purpose. So they, they respond to a narrative, they respond to a request of a public, of, of the audience uh, in, some, in some domains. Uh, having said that, uh, in in societies that are not European, so local, traditional, indigenous, there are also sea monsters or aquatic monsters or monstrosities, and they can be constructed again for multiple purposes. So there's this monster there. Don't go there. They could be a way of kind of um, how can I put it uh, uh, to control people's relationships with nature in terms of extraction and consumption, kind of a taboo, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak. So these constructions are part of uh, the way uh, humans uh, deal with, with their natural surrounds, with what they understand and they do not, and also what they want to control or not. And sometimes aquatic monsters or, or, or other monstrosities of nature could be a way of controlling, of categorizing, of saying don't go beyond these um, boundaries or these categories. Mm-hmm. So this this is the norm and this is out of the norm. This could be also a, a way of uh, setting people alongside a path or a route and it, this is not just in our kind of um, uh, European matrix of, of knowledge, of religion, and and of science, so to speak, for that period. Uh, it's part of uh, many other uh, worldviews uh, across mm-hmm. the world. It seems um, just to be a way that humans are going to deal with something as incomprehensible as the ocean. Yeah. It's really the the great unknown, the great out there, the great depths. Um, and uh, again, we have to uh, keep in mind that we that 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 humans, that people, that different societies have seen the world, the sorry, the the ocean very differently from one another. For for uh, some, it could be really a place to go and explore and discover and use, and for others. Uh, and for many uh, cultures for this period um, in West Africa, the ocean would be a place of of uh, of fear of death um, and not a place of abundance. So people react to the ocean very differently. But um, I think that the ocean is really contradictory even today. It's still the great unknown. So the great depths are still very much unknown to us. Mm-hmm. And I, I can only assume. And when I'm out in the ocean, and and I know, you know, you look uh, to the to the world around you when you are in the sea, uh, far away from the shore, and there's this enormous mass of water and possibilities, and darkness <laughs> below us, mm-hmm. and that might have been very scary for people at different uh, time periods and moments. Sure. Uh, yeah. Oh, we don't know. We still don't know what's out there. Well, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. You know, and if know you're... <laughs> it's a mystery out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're on the coast of West Africa, which is a really hostile coast, is, yeah. sailing is dangerous, you know, yeah. as opposed to the Mediterranean or... Yeah. Yeah, that's really yeah. important. So the the kind of the uh, biogeography, the, oceanogra- the oceanography of certain places also uh, um, 
impacts on how people uh, represent and understand the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I, I I see this, the ocean itself and the monsters and the, or the creatures that live in it, monsters, friends, yeah. whatever, they just represent this relationship with the ocean, as, as right in a lot of ways. Okay, um, one more thing I want to talk about before we go is uh, you you bring up the idea, you coin a phrase as near as I can tell, nature culture. Mm. Yeah, tell me about nature culture. Well, well, that's a concept. It's, it's debated today, still today. Um, but my idea is, 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 was try to understand, as I told you when we in the beginning of the conversation. So I'm a, a trained marine biologist and then a trained historian. And uh, when I started, and, and I, when I was studying animals uh, in the wild, I was studying behavior, bioacoustics. Um, so populations, a little bit of cognition and culture. And when I came to study humans, uh, um, my supervisor, and, and then I would go and say, so human population, because for me there was also an animal population, or human culture. Then my supervisor would say, no, when you say population, it's all, always human. So these differences between disciplines and kind of uh, not conflicting, but really different ways of using words and concepts and understanding um, scientific ideas from the natural sciences and the human sciences were always there. And for 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 a while earlier on on my career, I tried to separate these these two worlds, the natural world and the cultural world, for for me to to understand what I w- was doing and to address. Uh, in a new methodological ways, well, these questions. And then as I get along and I go back to the animals and how people interact with them, I came to understand, of course, as many other scholars do, that it's not possible, in my view, in my perspective, to separate human from nature. So human is nature, nature is human, we are part of a system. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I try to see how could I... Uh, kind of enclose at the same time ecological and historical and cultural perspectives. And that's how I came to this idea of nature culture, which is uh, discussed by Bruno Latour, Donna Haraway, many other scholars, even today in different disciplines, and how uh, eco-cultural systems, more than just ecosystems, uh, could be addressed. So the idea of a connected ecological and, and, and cultural world where humans, of course, are part of uh, ecosystems and trophic nets of our world, even if they are a top predator and deeply impacting uh, nature and ecosystems and other species, but also animals and, 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 and other species being part of historical narratives, more than just subjects, considering that animals... Uh, and and ecosystems and even the ocean itself could be seen as an agent or they have agency so they can be actors in the construction of history so there is no uh, history uh, no human history without the other species that's my perspective so this idea of the nature cultural system or the eco-cultural system uh, grows from this and it's something that uh, many people uh, within environmental history, environmental humanities, and our, uh, other areas are, are discussing today. Uh, we impact each other, we depend on each other, and it, there's no way to, to address 
well, even today, current day societal or environmental issues without considering these aspects as uh, entangled. And of course, the past is the same. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and so I've taken up a bunch of your time already. So I have just one more question, okay. which is what's next? What are you working on now? I do, I do like a lot of study marine mammals in the past, uh, in the oceans and their connections with people. I've been doing the Atlantic, the South Atlantic for many years now. And uh, I really want to kind of go global with this perspective, try to see if there's, there's this continuity in understanding these animals in, in other societies in, the, in different times, in different uh, temporal and cultural contexts. So I'm trying to move from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean and the Indo-Pacific to study uh, kind of manatee cousins, uh, which are the dugongs. So mm-hmm. I think I will stick uh, with the Sirenia, this group, this group of animals, of sea cows, um, and we'll start again to review Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, English sources for uh, that region of the world to see if there are similarities and try again to address how local people have studied the animals. I, I am, again, assuming <laughs> that's something that we do when we start uh, research. I'm assuming mm-hmm. that would be very similar to what um, pe- peoples of the Atlantic, so to speak, uh, would, would have done with the animals and do today. Um, but uh, all the species of Sirenia today, the three species of manatees, the dugongs, they are threatened, they are endangered. And I think it's really important also to bring this historical information, quantitative information that we can extract from the sources to current day conservation and management. So not just going to other oceanic basin, but also trying to impact uh, current day conservation uh, with uh, the use of historical uh, data and sources. I think the humanities, well, the humanities for the ocean, as I call them, the humanities can contribute to ocean science. And then my kind of next step, uh, let's see what that will bring. <laughs> oh, that sounds wonderful and really interesting. Yeah, and just looking at, you know, the, um, the num- just, yeah, these sheer numbers when we're talking about the die-off that, you know, in the Anthropocene has got to be useful. Yeah. Yeah, the Anthropocene is also something that I'm really interesting, uh, interested in studying, not just the Anthropocene of the 20th century, the Great Acceleration, but also going back to this early modern period and, and kind of the early globalization, the early impacts, the early extinctions. And these animals are, are in fact, a good subject to do that, exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. <clears throat> oh, Christina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll talk again soon. When you have your next book, we'll, we'll have a chat. Sure. Right. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>